0: Welcome to Open Door and this is Bill Effler again. This morning I wanna uh, just give credit to where credit is due and that is that we have Josh Neeland, who's doing our uh, video taping for us this morning and Luke Mercer from Strum Media. Uh, last week when we were together, I interviewed Amy Mercer. Uh, her story revolved around how she uh, processed through, navigated through uh, her same-sex orientation and how she came into a, a deeper understanding and uh, relationship with, with the Lord. And uh, during that time, she referenced a book, and this is her book, and we will put this up on this video as well, but losing uh, her religion in every sense of the word, she made a, a clear uh, understanding, a, a difference between uh, religion and relationship, which is a, which is a big deal to me personally also want to reference a counseling book that uh, I published uh, four years ago uh, coming called Coming Out of the Shadows, and it is a counseling book. It's a book that I use in my upper division counseling class, but it's really written in a, in a narrative and a style that would be very helpful for people who are wanting to help others, so I reference that to you as well. This morning, we're going to be having a, another interview, a colleague of mine, Brian Peterson. And I'll say more about him in a moment, but also want to kind of plug his book. And uh, he actually, he's a he is an animal in the publishing uh, world, at least as far as I'm concerned. And his text is on the Bible and sexuality and raising a Christian family in a, a postmodern culture. And for myself personally, I, I use the word Post-Christian culture, because I really believe that that's where uh, we are at today. That's a, another whole podcast in and of itself. What is the difference between postmodern and and, and post-Christian? Uh, but I'm just going to uh, let that uh, let that dog run a while. I'm not going to I'm not going to chase it. But today is the the third uh, sequence, a third segment in uh, what I think is going to be five videos dealing with the LGBTQI conversation, and I've intentionally identified it as a conversation because my experience has been, particularly with church people, is that they do not know how to talk sanely and sensibly with people whose opinions are different from theirs, and there can't be a, a more different opinion uh, than those who, uh-huh, embrace the same-sex attraction, uh, relationship, or orientation, lifestyle, identity, whatever word you want to use. And these are all words that are commonly used today when having conversation with the LGBTQI uh, community. But today is a, is a different day. We're uh, I'm, I've invited Brian to come in and, and share with us specifically Uh, really what the ancient world has to say, uh, what the scriptural world has to say today regarding the LGBTQI conversation. So it's altogether different than last week and it's altogether different than the next two weeks in in particular. But uh, who is Brian Peterson? Who is this guy, this friend, He's uh, he's not only my colleague, but he's my sweet mate. He's he's one wall away from uh, from where we're at. And so, uh, Brian, I'd like you to tell our viewing audience uh, who is Brian Peterson, uh, what makes him tick, a little bit about your background, family. Uh,
1: but uh, the mic is yours. Sure. Well, thanks for having me today. Um, I'm actually a Canadian. That's the accent you're hearing. Oh my God. So um, I don't say a. Uh, I actually am a carpenter by trade. I was a carpenter until I was roughly uh, 30 years old and then, like Christ, felt called into ministry and went off to Bible school and did my undergrad in biblical studies. And that's basically what I thought I was going to do until God led me on to do a master's program. And that led into another master's program, which led into a PhD in Hebrew Bible at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I went on and taught, and my first position was at a little school in uh, Three Hills, Alberta called Prairie Bible College, and from there I was come on here to Lee University. And so I've had a pretty interesting past as far as education sure. and work. So how long have you been at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee now? I think I'm going into my 12th year now. Oh my go gosh. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, the, the clock does yeah. not seem to stop yeah. for, for anybody. Yeah. So you know, Brian shared with us is a little bit of his own. Oh, by the way, you yeah, got family out, outside when you, when you're not uh, researching and writing. A, uh, w- what do you do that
1: uh, is just kind of maybe nerd-like or whatever? Well, I have a family of five small kids, all under the age of ten. And so my wife and I homeschool, uh-huh. and so we just kind of hang out with the family as much as we can when I'm not publishing or not writing. There you go. Uh, so yeah, our we, like for example, we went to uh, Noah's Ark up in Kentucky last week. We what was of, that like? Uh, it was an interesting experience, <laughs> Sure. with small, five small kids. Yeah,
0: and an Old Testament scholar saying, that's wrong, yeah. that's wrong, uh, where did they <laughs> get this? So It was pretty good. Sure. Good deal. So you know by now that uh, this is the uh, Old Testament, a huge catalog of literature, and and I refer to the entire canon of Scripture as literature. That's that's really where where it all begins. But uh, but in recent years, in the last three to five years, at least that's what my memory tells me. Uh, Brian's uh, attention, his head has gotten turned in a different direction. And that is the impact that our culture has had on worldview, uh, how we understand not only the Old Testament but the New Testament. But can you just tell us a little bit, you know, what what's brought about that change of, of interest? Not leaving uh, any one discipline in particular, but just you know, tell us about that.
1: Okay. Well, you're right. I mean, my, my expertise is actually in the Book of Ezekiel, Old Testament, and did my dissertation there. Uh, published uh, pretty widely in the Old Testament, very technical stuff for the most part, what I call for the scholarly community or the academy. And about five years ago, I was noticing some changes within the classroom and and thinking that my students needed uh, more uh, literature that they could read as opposed to being so technical. And so I- And let me just
0: interrupt. What do you mean by changes in the classroom or changes within our student culture?
1: Well, uh, not only were they, well, I was finding my students were biblically illiterate, uh, they didn't know how to navigate the hard questions that the culture was asking of them, for example, in the areas of sexual ethics. And so what I ended up doing is I started dabbling in research in this area, and I realized it's a pretty broad area of research. And so what I began to do was zero in more on how, what does the Bible actually have to say about this, these topics? and how might uh, my understanding of the Old Testament, ancient Near East, uh, influence uh, the conversation in some way. So. Okay, okay. When when I've
0: had a uh, conversation with uh, folks in the LGBTQI community, and uh, a week rarely goes by that, that I'm not mm-hmm. in that conversation, um, the one of the biblical narratives that's uh, I think widely known within the church and also within the the gay or homosexual community is the biblical narrative or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are different uh, interpretations and understandings and and Brian uh, uh, I mean I don't want you to get into deep weeds yes. on on this but I would like uh, you to share uh, kind of an overview of w- w- what is that story literally and and act like we know nothing okay. um uh, and how is that story read or understood uh both from the ancient perspective mm-hmm. that is to say what does the inspired word of god have to say what was god trying to communicate and then Also, how is culture reading that and understanding that story today?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, the the account of Sodom, Genesis 19, is a text I often go over in my class because it's central to the book of Genesis. But it tells the story of uh, the five cities of the plain, Sodom in particular, Sodom and Gomorrah, the pair that's often uh, kind of singled out. And in this particular story, um, God sends down two angels, to check out if the account of what he has heard, and again, you have to understand that language from the ancient context, not like he didn't know. It uh, has to do with uh, proving everything by the mouth of two witnesses according to Torah. And the thinking was that there was something going on really, really bad in these cities that needed to be checked out. Now our modern perspective, or I should say even church perspective throughout history has been that this had something to do with same-sex activity and uh, so the story goes that the two angels show up later in the day when normally they would be asked into somebody's house and this was very common in the ancient world they didn't have a motel six or a best western or whatnot to go to and so strangers who wanted to stay overnight in the city uh, would be extended hospitality from uh, somebody from within the city and they would go and, and stay with them for the night well, in this particular story, you have the two angels appearing uh, at the at the gate, and then Lot inviting them into the
0: house. Now, pause here. Did, did they identify themselves as angels, or are they mere travelers, uh, Bedouin sojourners, if you yeah. will, and are saying, you know, we're here and we need a place for the night?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, common misconception within, especially the what we call the affirming group of of scholars, those who affirm. Uh, LGBTQI uh, lifestyles Uh uh, an interpretation of the text that supports that uh, that what was going on here is that the men of the city knew that these were angels in some way the text doesn't make that clear matter of fact it remains silent on it and it's not Mm -hmm. really until the the two angels smite the men of the city with blindness that I think a lot begins to honed in on the fact that these two individuals are probably more than just mere travelers. Uh And so, yeah, the basic story is that, you know, when Lot brings them into the house, uh, later that night, after they've gone through a period of feasting and celebration, you know, typical Middle Mm -hmm. Eastern uh, uh, time of fellowship, that all the men of the city, the text says, all the men of the city, both young and old, gather around the house and begin to beat on the doors and beat on the walls and tells Lot to bring out the two men that they may know them. In the Hebrew, it's yada, uh, And it's a term that can mean both to know mm-hmm. and it can mean uh, mm-hmm. to have sexual relations with. You bet. So, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, most people know what happens in that story and the fact that Lot goes out and tries to negotiate with them and saying, do not do this great wickedness. And instead, offers his two daughters. Uh, as, and he says, they have never known a man. And instead- And it, and
0: isn't it interesting here, That so, what is the worst of the two sins, so to speak? Is it the same sex relationship or a father who would offer his own virgin daughters to the men of the city? I mean, we're not going to chase that, but I just find you know, here are these two choices.
1: Yeah, there's no question that, and and I often get students who look at me uh, kind of strangely when I tell that story that what kind of father would do that? I'm a father of three children, three girls. And I couldn't imagine doing this. But it also, the story's wanting to be read in such a way that you understand that Lot has been influenced by the paganism of Sodom and Gomorrah. You bet. Uh, And so there's more to it than just, yes, in the ancient context, for a man to be taken advantage of by another man, that was seen as worse than Mm -hmm. a woman being taken advantage of by a man, even though both of those are heinous in our Mm -hmm. eyes today. So he has him. And so, what ends up happening, of course, uh, Lot tries to negotiate with the men. They will have none of it. They want to have uh, the men who are inside. And so, they say to Lot, We are going to do worse to you than what we were going to do to the two men. And so, the angels pull Lot in to protect him from the raging crowd or the, the roaring crowd. And then they smite the men outside the walls with blindness. Now, at that point, you would think they would leave. But no, they don't. They actually, the text says they wearied themselves trying to get in, trying to find the door. And it's at that point that the, the, the two angels say, and I think at this point, Lot starts, again, trying to, beginning to zero in on the fact that, hey, these are not two ordinary guests uh, that I have here. And they tell Lot to get together whoever he has in the city uh, who are basically on his side, that are righteous, and they're going to leave the city now. Uh, that judgment has come. And that is normally where the story is, is left in, in the sense that Lot and his, his daughter and his two daughters and his wife are taken by the hand, literally and physically pulled out of the city. Mm-hmm. They do not want to leave. And the angels drag them out of the city. And of course, Lot's wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt because they, they were commanded, do not look back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the story, for the most part, the, the fire falls from heaven and the cities of the plain are destroyed. Well, a lot of people leave the story there, but the rest of chapter 19 has to be read in that context. And what happens is Lot and his two daughters, after his wife is turned into a pillar of salt, they actually end up in a cave along the cliffs uh, along the Dead Sea. And, and who ends up in the cave exactly? Uh, lot and his two daughters. Okay. And so while they are in the the cave, the two daughters come to the conclusion that, hey, they're, when they see the fire falling, they're just assuming Uh, that all the people are are destroyed in the area and the two daughters say hey there's no man around for us how are we going to perpetuate our father's Mm -hmm. lineage and so they get their they come up with this plan where they get their father drunk and then uh, on consecutive nights the oldest goes into their father first and has sexual relations with him and then the second night, the younger one goes in and they both become impregnated. And this is where we get the tribes of Moab, or the, the nations of Moab and the in the ancient world in the biblical text. And so you have to read that all in totality. Uh, and when you read that, and it's really key that you have these two daughters getting their father drunk and having sexual relations, because in, when the interpretation of the text comes around, this is what's key. And so, uh, if you want me to go on and and give me... And what specifically
0: is, what what are the key benchmarks for the narrative that you've unpacked so far? What are the key hooks that you think people need to be aware of in properly understanding the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. Rehearse that quickly.
1: Well, I'll begin by just saying that most scholars today recognize this text as problematic. They will say that it's not dealing, however, with loving, caring, same-sex relationships like we see today. That this has to do with domination, that this has to do with rape, or the most common one, this has to do with inhospitality. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to see here, folks, let's move on. It has nothing to speak to our conversation today. Matter of fact, evangelicals are just as complicit in this. Uh, they, most of them, will not touch this text. They just assume that this is what it's talking mm-hmm. is talking about domination. Well, there are several key hooks in this text, as you would say, that you really need to zero in on. The first one actually appears in chapter 13, verse 13. So you have to go back, because that's where Sodom is first introduced. And so a lot of times, when people interpret the text, they will just zero in on one chapter. And they say, well, what does this say? Or part of the chapter. Uh, but in this particular account, you have to read from chapters 13 to chapter 20 and put it all in context because chapter 13 is the first time Sodom is mentioned and it's in uh, the context of Lot and Abraham parting ways Mm -hmm. and the text Mm -hmm. says that Lot pitched his tent Mm -hmm. towards Sodom and then at that key moment you actually have the author saying this now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked Mm -hmm. sinners against God it's out of nowhere. And so uh, when I began to study this and look at this particular phraseology, what I found in the Hebrew is that it appears three times in the book of Genesis, sinning against God. And in every case, it has to do with sexual sin. Mm-hmm. So immediately what this does is it puts it in a context outside of the issues of inhospitality. Now, again, you could say, well, maybe it has to do with domination or rape. Uh, but as you move forward in the text... The key thing in chapter 19 that you have to keep in mind, and it appears really early in in chapter 19 is the fact that if this is an issue of inhospitality then when the men came into the city and no one moved except for Lot to invite them into the house, that was the moment that, that God could have judged them because Lot is a foreigner in the city. And the native men refused to offer hospitality and it was actually Lot who forced the men because they were just going to stay in the city square and Lot says you can't do that. So what that's telling us is Lot knew something about the men of the city and in this particular case if it was in hospitality that would have been the moment that the angels could have said okay we've seen enough. Mm -hmm. They didn't invite us into their homes it was only this foreigner so therefore we can bring judgment. But instead what it does you have to go on to the the key point is when the men are trying to get into the house and they say uh, we want to know your Mm -hmm. your your guests." well one of the other scholarly interpretations and this one is not really widely accepted but it is well the men just wanted to check out the credentials Mm -hmm. of of the the men just you know to find out who they were had nothing sexual to go on going on here at all well the the story itself just pushes against that because you actually have Mm -hmm. a lot offering his two daughters. So there's no question that this is what's going on, that there's something sexual and he recognizes it. So the chapter 13 is very important, those early verses of chapter 19, and then the last point that's very important in the text is reading the account of Lot and his two daughters in the cave Mm -hmm. in light of that account, because it's all going together. And when you read it in, in that light, what you actually find is, in the context of Genesis chapter six all the way over to chapter twenty, we have two accounts of, of judgment on the earth and/or cities, and it ha- it follows a similar pattern. So let me
0: put a pause on you. Yeah.
1: Claire, clearly,
0: uh, Brian is uh, showing very clearly his unscholarly background. Uh, he's talked about the Hebrew text. In fact, I would go so far as to say it would be uh, it would be good for the the viewers to read through Genesis 6 through through 20. Uh, And so this is where Brian shines in his scholarly research and and writing. But I'm very different than than Brian. I'm more the behaviorist, and I wanna bring this to the table. And that is in a phrase that relationships are contagious. You catch that which you're around.
1: Mm.
0: Relationships are contagious, you catch that which are around. Uh, if I'm sick, if I have COVID-19, and I don't, thank God, uh, navigated that in, in February. If, I, if I'm sick, and if Brian hangs around me long enough, he, he's going to get sick too. But relationships are contagious. But he's also laid down a part of the the text here, and that is that, that Lot pitched his tent near, and I think that that's where the door begins to open up for people uh, in 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 difficulty is that it's it's not that they're just within proximity, it's that proximity then uh, leads to other things that, that are very, very, uh, you know, not good in every sense of the word. The other thing that you can't escape here is uh, the the incestuous relationship between uh, Lot and his daughter's end and the daughters become impregnated and, and then that brings on... Uh, what are the nations?
1: Ammon and Moab. Yeah, you know, I Torah mean, like
0: we could we could chase that one for a while, and it's hard for me to imagine anything great could come out of those two nations. And, and again, here is the uh, the result of you know, somebody said there's no right way of doing a wrong thing, and I think that this is clearly you know the the case here. So, uh, Brian, in in summary, the two positions, the two major positions on how the Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah stories told uh, just if you can in summary what are the positions on how uh, people are viewing not necessarily scholarship uh, but even people within within the church
1: who are trying to navigate their own identity how how is the story uh, understood? Well, again, the, the, the dominant way to look at this is the inhospitality mm-hmm. discussion. That it, when read in light of chapter 18, where Abraham offers hospitality to mm-hmm. Yahweh and the two angels, mm-hmm. then Lot does it for the angels in Sodom, and the men of Sodom refused it. As a matter of fact, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 49, is often quoted by affirming scholars saying, see, this is the evidence. In chapter 16 of Ezekiel, where it says that they had careless ease and they didn't share with the poor and whatnot. Well, the problem is is they stop short of reading the next verse, which goes on and talks about, and they committed an abomination before Mm God, uh, which brings in, of course, the whole Levitical law and whatnot. But in in the context of what scholars are trying to do with this text, as far as applicability today, they will say, because it is dealing with ancient protocols of hospitality, it really has nothing to say to us, and that this text should be set aside. And what I've tried to do in the book I wrote back in 2016 on what was the Sin of Sodom, and I go into much more detail, obviously, in all of these discussions. But try to point out that it has very much to do with what we're dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Because in the context of chapter 6 to 20, what you get is something sexual goes on with the, 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 uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Then God sends judgment upon the earth. And then after they come out of the ark, Noah and Ham, Shem and Japheth, and their wives, Ham does something to his drunken father in mm-hmm. the tent that leads to his cursing. In the same way, what you get over in the Sin of Sodom is the issue of something sexual is going on, already noted in chapter 13, verse 13. Then uh, judgment falls upon the cities, and then something happens between two daughters and a drunken father. So you have to read this in the context. And so what it is saying, and this is where my work in, in Genesis as Torah, another book that I wrote a few years ago, Uh, that you read Genesis as Torah overall, in other words, instruction. Mm -hmm. And so what I argue is that Genesis 19 is part of case law. And as case law, what it is doing, it is illustrating what we are actually seeing in the laws of Leviticus. And so you have issues of incest, you have incest of homosexuality, you have incest of rape or Mm -hmm. attempted rape, you have issues of... Um, Domination. Well, that and, and even the issue of dealing with adultery because the two betrothed daughters of Lot, he offers them. And in the ancient world, if you were betrothed and you had sexual relationships oh. before marriage, it was equivalent to adultery. Oh, oh, yeah? So what you have here is a narrative that is explaining some of that case law later. In the in the time that we have left,
0: uh, um, uh, I want to intentionally spin this uh, in an area that that, that is not where you shine but where I shine but where your heart is getting illumined today yes. and that is that you have five young children under the age of 10, three daughters as you've mentioned and I've got to be thinking that at some point in time you and Christine uh, in looking at culture today no matter whose news you're listening to uh, you've got to be asking yourselves how are we going to deal with the issues of Uh, of identity, choice of gender, uh, peer pressure. I mean, the list goes on. And so uh, I'd like you, you know, as we kind of wind things up here, uh, talk to us, not as scholar, but as father and as husband. And uh, how do you make this relevant and understandable to very young children whose, Whose identity and whose uh, uh, the mental wherewithal mm-hmm. is, is still very much in an embryonic form, right. and so all all the books that you and I have have read and have have written, the the lessons that we have given, uh, the devotionals that we have shared. Let's all bring that down, uh, and I'd like you to think about you and Christine but also there's an entire viewing audience out there. Uh, We have parents and grandparents who are now raising their grandchildren today because parents are either too busy or or for whatever reason, uh, I'd like you to kind of bring us to that place. Yeah,
1: I mean, this is a question, obviously my wife and I've had a lot, uh, and we are so thankful for what God has given us with, with five beautiful children so much so that my wife and and i made the decision that one of us was going to be at home with our children Mm -hmm. and so my wife is a very smart lady Mm -hmm. with three degrees of her of her own and accepted into a phd program but she put everything on hold to homeschool our children and i know this is not popular with uh, a lot of people but i have made very clear in a lot of my writings my wife and i's writings is that that comes first and by doing that what we do is we can, and I don't want to use the word shelter, but protect to a certain degree mm-hmm. those gifts that God has given mm-hmm. us uh, until they are ready for that conversation. What we are seeing in our culture today is really an attack on our children, some a war on children, mm-hmm. where the children are being attacked uh, with, the, with a lot, or being bombarded with a lot of the sexual messages uh, that are really perverse when you stop and consider mm-hmm. for a three or four or five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these things, when I'm dealing with my children, we are kind of, with, obviously in prayer and, and recognizing, allowing God to lead us, at what point is, for example, my oldest who is just coming up on 10 years old, at what point is she going to need to know a lot of this material or be introduced to it? Mm-hmm. And what we have found is, especially in a homeschooling environment, uh, we can integrate that when the questions naturally arise in a family setting. Mm-hmm. And my wife does a very good job on, of that. And of course, we both publish and work in this area, and it's uh, something my wife and I are working on our current book together, dealing with some of these topics. But we try to make it age appropriate, as opposed to what our culture is doing and what the educational system is doing, is shoving it onto younger and younger people. And so I would tell parents and grandparents to, A, know what your children are being taught and make sure it is age appropriate. But also consider seriously consider what their uh, um, how they can actually influence their children, perhaps through a homeschooling environment.
0: You know, I I would uh, I'm thinking about one of my colleagues in particular, Dr. Bob Bales, who teaches in the area of discipleship. And uh, if if he were sitting at this table, uh, he would clearly say that the area of identity, gender, things that we've been talking today, this is not something. This is not curriculum that should be taught in the church, this is something that should be introduced to in the home. Yes. Maybe flushed out in the church, maybe yes. further explained in the church, or on a podcast like this, but I think one of the things that, uh, in a complaint, an indictment that I would have a, uh, about the Christian home today, is that uh, moms and dads have, uh, you know, released that or said, you know, that's that's the church's job, or that's the pastor's job. and. Uh, you know, I categorically, you know, disagree with that, and I'm
1: thinking that you probably yeah. have drunk out of that same cup. Yeah, and, and again, there's a lot of the issues that we deal with uh, when it comes to uh, identity and questions, you know, sexuality and whatnot. These are natural things. As a father now of i I'm watching this happen even with my little boys, little girls, you know, whether they want to put on girls' clothes or whatnot. Well, in today's culture, as soon as that happens, we're automatically, oh my goodness, we have to now identify mm-hmm. as X, mm-hmm. whatever you know, the the going flavor is. Mm-hmm. And I say what I'm learning is that the majority of these and my research is showing that a majority of these types of issues work themselves out mm-hmm. by the time, you know, young adulthood or even into late teens. A lot of this has worked out, but unfortunately our culture is pushing people mm-hmm. into identities mm-hmm. that uh, would normally not happen in, in a regular setting. And just so, just so you're aware,
0: uh, next week in particular uh, when we come to segment four of the LGBTQI conversation, I'm gonna be talking about these stages of how does this morph? How does this develop? So uh, I know that perhaps this has uh, surface some uh, questions, some, gosh, I'd like to ask them about this, uh, but we're gonna to continue to, to unpack this. So I would agree with you uh, that that culture, and in factly, it's, it's in our curriculum, yes. it's, it's forced. And it's, and it's interesting to me that the one side of the conversation can be so uh, visceral yeah. and be so. I'm going to use the word militant, yeah. and yet those of us on the conservative side who try to understand the scripture on one hand and try to be sensitively and um, pastorally helpful on the other, then then we are called haters yes. by the by the very group that. Uh, is, is just so visceral and so I mean that's another old topic in and of yes, itself absolutely. so here's the last thing and, and now our time is, 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 is well gone if there's one thing uh, one item one concept that you could leave the uh, viewing audience with today what is that and I'd like you to look into we have two cameras going here today but I'd like you to look into that camera and uh, give them as Billy Joel would say your best shot
1: I would say, protect your children. Uh, We have have been seeing this on social media coming uh, just this past weekend, or week, sorry, uh, uh, the gay choir at San Francisco, Mm -hmm. gay men's choir, they said, we're coming for your children. Mm -hmm. And these, for me, like I said, as a father of five, I protect my children, and it's our responsibility to do it. If we don't, the enemy will uh, get our children, and as I would say, protect them and do whatever it takes to educate them in the ways of truth the Word of God. Wow. Well, Brian, thank you so much for spending a, a morning uh, with yeah. us.
0: And uh, I I know that there is a, churches out there that are asking this question. As recent as this morning, I had another contact from another church saying, you know, uh, is this available? Would you be able to come and present? And obviously we would. So uh, we know that this is a difficult thorny topic, but I don't think that we're Uh, We can afford to be silent on this. I don't think that uh, we should be silent on on any topic. But I want to encourage you to, uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, the word disciple means learner, and we never stop learning. Until next time, I'm Bill Effler. This is Brian Peterson, and you've been with Open Door.